Welcome to Top Advisor Marketing, where you will learn how to become a prolific online influencer, attract more ideal clients, and grow your practice. Brought to you by Top Advisor Podcasting, a done-for-you podcasting solution built just for trusted advisors. And now, your co-hosts of Top Advisor Marketing, Kirk Lowe and Matt Halloran. Hello and welcome to another Top Advisor Marketing Podcast. Today, we are doing a three-part mini-series on this unbelievable study. And we're going to break through all of this stuff. We're going to break it down. We're going to talk about what's going on and why this report was done. But we love bringing information to you uh, from an organization because when we do this, it's going to help you change the way that you communicate, especially this report, with existing clients, prospects, uh, families, centers of influence. There's so much meat and potatoes in this. You guys are going to be overwhelmed and hopefully taking a lot of notes. But you don't have to take super lots of notes because we're going to make sure you have a link to this research paper that has been provided us to uh, by uh, Laura Gregg, who is the Senior Vice President, Director of Practice Management and Advisor Research, and David Partain, the Chief Marketing Officer of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Happy to be here. Well, I want you all to tell me and tell our listeners what this study is about. It, just start wherever you want to go, and we'll just uh, dive in from there. Yeah, uh, thanks, Matt. Um, so our, our study, we think, uh, we're pretty certain it, it's quite unique in the industry. Um, we, did a, we started out wanting to do a study on high net worth primary breadwinner women, um, as we dug into that topic and started working through the survey, we realized that uh, it would probably be helpful if we also surveyed men, high net worth, primary breadwinner went, uh, men. So um, our, our goal was to understand uh, if and what the differences are in the investment perspectives and expectations that these powerful people have of their advisors and to learn just a little bit more about them and to see um, how their um, behaviors uh, were similar or different than what we often hear about in the industry. Now, something had to have triggered your desire to do this. Was there a a sociological event, uh, an anthropological event, any logical events that said, you guys, wow, I really need to do this? Yeah, I can... uh address that, you know, we kind of did this out of necessity, really. Laura was trying to update an opinion piece on why advisors, how they should talk to executive women and why they need them as clients and what it would take to retain them. However, as we tried to add data to substantiate our opinions, we found that there was next to nothing available on high net worth primary breadwinner executive women. And as Laura mentioned, we then went further and said, well, how can we compare executive men and give us a, a, a very, almost a roadmap for advisors to utilize when they speak with these, this unique demographic? So you've already previewed us, you know, why, why do we need this? Well, let's dive into that a little bit more deeply, please. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, it's, we, we've seen a lot of data and stats in our industry and even outside about the uh, growing force of women in terms of controlling a greater share of U.S. and global wealth and the projections for that to continue um, over the next decade and, and longer. Um, women are holding 
more and more positions of power in the workforce. They represent 51% of the population, but also 51% of them are uh, in management roles in Fortune 500 companies. Um, But despite these trends, most of the information out there about women investors paint the whole group as a monolith. Um, What we read about is that um, they suggest that all women share the same investment goals and, and the same approach to wealth management. Now, and we know that's just not accurate, right? So typically what we see is that also in our industry that if a woman is wealthy, she's wealthy because she was the recipient of a wealth transfer. And while, of course, that's true for many women, it's also true for many men. But you rarely pick up an article that talks about the wealth transfer to men, or at least I haven't found a lot of those. Um, so we really wanted to learn if and how high net worth primary breadwinner women were different from their male counterparts. And so, as I mentioned earlier, we surveyed both men and women for this uh, research study. Well, it looks like uh, you already know what your next paper is going to be about, because we should probably do one on uh, wealth transfer with men. That would be super fascinating, too. <laughs> a lot of times when when an organization like yours does a, a research study like this, there's a reason for it. Like, you get pressure from from advisors or the home office or, again, something sociologically happened. Did somebody ask you to do this, or how did this come about? Well, Matt, yeah, Laura asked me to do it. And I said, absolutely. But uh, really, this was an area that we saw as being in the white space, in the space where people were not uh, putting um, resources into to find out what was going on with exactly this, this cohort. And that's why, really why we do it. it. It really was Laura came to me and said, you know, I'm updating this, this paper that we're doing on just executive women. And I, I think there's something here uh, more than what we have in this current paper, which was written about three, three and a half years ago. And so because we saw that it, it was something that wasn't covered broadly or really not at all by the industry, and we just thought it was important to shine a spotlight on this cohort. Yeah, I can't wait for us yeah, to dive in. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I just wanted to add to that. The the opinion piece, which was originally written by somebody else in our organization in 2011, was like, I call it the fan favorite. All of our advisor clients wanted that paper. They read it. They shared it with their colleagues. And so there was really, you know, we were seeing something happening there. The advisors were really interested in this cohort. But again, as David mentioned, there really isn't much research on it. So uh, we were excited to be the ones to to dive in here. And podcast number two of this three-part series is where we're going to dive in even more deeply into the results of this. Now, I'm asking you a very nerdy question here, and part of it is because I don't think people truly understand everything that goes into doing a paper like this, a research study. How did you do this study? Are you two both hardcore research wonks and know all of the ins and outs of how how, how you need to uh, collect data and all of those sorts of things? So are you calling us nerds? Is that what <laughs> yeah. you're calling us? Well, I was attempting <laughs> to, yes, but I don't know how that's going to go over. So, <laughs> Well, we actually are very much, both of us have an inclination to, to go that route, but we are also marketers. And we wanted to hire an actual research firm in the space that has done significant research 
for the financial services industry. And so there was a firm that has done other surveys for us. They are out of California called Rydell Strategies. There are a couple, uh, he is a PhD from University of Chicago. She is an MBA also from the University of Chicago. And they uh, went ahead and put this uh, together. And they've been working together for many years and we've utilized them on other other uh, research projects, but nothing that they actually haven't gotten as excited about huh. as this one. Huh. Where did you get the sample from? I mean, how did you get people to respond? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, one of the, as we as Laura and I go out and speak on this topic, uh, one of the questions that an advisor asked last week in Chicago was, you know, uh, we I don't pick up the phone for a lot of telemarketers. How did you get people to do this? How did you get the sample size? And really, that's part of the role of the research firm. And it took a, it took a good amount of work because you can imagine if you're, if you're calling and trying to uh, and attempting to get a panel of respondents who will pick up the phone and talk to you or will get online and fill out a survey, you can imagine that that's not easy with this cohort, especially they're they're well educated, they're making six figure income usually, and they're fifty one at least fifty one percent of the household wealth. So those are people that are very busy. And so what our research company does is they work with other companies that provide these survey panels. And to participate, the respondents had to pass quite a few screening parameters just to ensure that the data was good and relevant. And we also wanted a national panel. How big was the sample size? So it was uh, 461 respondents, 211 women, and 250 men that participated uh, across the country. Now, I don't know if people truly understand why, where you got the sample and how big the sample size was. Uh, why that's so important. Now, I know you hired a, a research firm for that, but why are those two things so important when you're creating a study like this? Sure. So we, we want to have enough uh, people responding to um, make it statistically accurate. And um, the number, uh, you know, which, which can make something statistically accurate can be as small as 40 or 50. Um, we always like much more than that in the, the research projects that we do. So we're working with a firm like Rydell gives us um, great confidence that um, we're, we're going to get the right sample size and we're going to get them in the pockets and where uh, we needed them. We were in nine metro markets across the country. Um, and they, they've got a, a variety of measures in place to identify, um, so for instance, um, I do a lot of online surveys just because I like to be aware of, uh, you know, what those look like and how they feel. And, and, you know, sometimes I'll be watching TV. I won't be paying attention. And so I was talking with them a couple of weeks ago when I was out in L.A. And I said, so what about somebody like me that's filling out this online form? And, you know, it's not I'm not giving my best answers. And they said, well, there are a lot of things that they have in place with the online panel companies, and they can identify that very quickly, and they just remove those responses from the sample. So um, we invest in this research. We're passionate about it, and we want to make sure that what we provide for our advisor clients is the highest quality. So, Matt, can you tell that uh, Laura's a way bigger nerd than I am? (laughs) 
<laughs> Her nerdiness, uh, she let that nerd flag fly a little bit there. That was awesome. Well, well, you know, you can get you can get airline points for doing those surveys. <laughs> well, and I know you guys are on the road a lot talking about this right now, so those airline points can definitely come in handy. But we're surveyed to death, right? I mean, that's every time I go somewhere, everybody asks me to do a survey. So it's nice that the the research company. Um, made sure that they were weeding out to the people who uh, weren't going to provide this study with the right data. Now, you both work for large organization, right? And 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 so you're not going to just do this out of the goodness of your heart. Why did you guys do this? What is the desired outcome for these results? Yeah, well, Matt, what takes uh, its relationship with our advisors, clients, uh, really seriously, um, we we want to build long-term partnerships with our clients, and um, we want to be able to provide more than investment products, more than ETS, which we do, but we want to make sure we're providing valuable information to our advisor partners that can help them either fine-tune what they're currently doing or make some changes that can help them a scale or grow their business, take it to the next level. And, and we think that this research is, is one part of that. Um, we hope it is anyway. And we really, you know, I mean, thinking about this a little bit further, um, one of the findings that came out of this is how we all make assumptions. I do. I often make a lot of wrong assumptions. In fact, I was telling David yesterday that, my very closest friends in the world today were people who, when I met them, I didn't particularly like them one bit. I made wrong assumptions about them. So, you know, fast forward 20-some years, and now if I meet somebody and they rub me the wrong way, I'm pretty sure we're going to be lifelong friends. Um, <laughs> but we all make assumptions, and, and a lot of them can be wrong. And so our hope is that through this research, we can highlight that and give advisors ideas for how to leave the assumptions at the door when they're meeting with a prospect, the right questions to ask so that they can build, have the opportunity to build really long and strong relationships with prospects and, and their existing clients. And, you know, as, as previously mentioned, you know, there is a lot of information out there about women investors. So, we also didn't want to be a, a, you know, one more company that provided the same information uh, that's already out there. But, you know, as I said before, so much of the research looks at women as a monolithic group. Um, sometimes it's segmented, right? You see a lot of stuff out there about wealthy women or divorced women or widowed women. But, you know, let's let's think about widows for a second. Um are widows really all the same? Are their investment objectives and attitudes toward the wealth management process really the same? You know, if you think of maybe a 25-year-old widowed bride of a Marine uh, Corps uh, who received a life insurance payment, how similar is she to the 70-year-old widow of an executive? And are those two women really at all uh, like the 50-year-old CFO of a company who just lost her husband or a 40-year-old surgeon. I mean, you see where I'm going. People are all different. 
But for some reason in our industry, painting women as being the same has been a thing. And um, we believe that that may cause advisors to make wrong assumptions and it could cause suitability issues. And if advisors are approaching women with a mindset of assumptions about what they want or what they need, um, advisors may actually miss the opportunity to get their business. And Matt, if I could jump in here, um, I would say, of course, as a big asset management firm, Northern Trust, which flexures the ETFs are a division of, is would like to have uh, a relationship with any advisor that feels that uh, our our products meet their clients' needs. But the reality is we live in an industry that is going through some significant transformations. Um, a Bloomberg study showed that advisors, that we are seeing a dramatic drop-off in advisors over the next five to 10 years. And most, and most of that's due to the baby boomers retiring. But you also have the Gen X generation, which was significantly less just in terms of numbers. And then you have the uh, millennial generation that saw their parents go out of work in, uh, during the, the downturn in 08, and the banks were blamed. And so they have not chosen to go into this business. <clears throat> and so for us to be able to help an advisor who at the end of the day is, an, is a business person. They hire and fire people. They have to make decisions on, the, on their clients and who they're going to take as a client, and they have to pay the electric bill. So they're actually, if they're not in a large organization, they are a, have their own shingle out there, and so they have to run their business. And so our ability to, to bring them content that will help them run their business more effectively is really for Laura and I, as part of a large organization, is really fulfilling for us, and it makes it all worthwhile. This is such great information that we're going to dive into now just a little bit and then more deeply into the second and the third podcast. But the stuff that came out of this, and and Laura, when you were talking about the difference between a widowed 25-year-old bride or a widow of an uh, an executive who's much, much older, a CFO of a company, you know, the, the, the woman who's a, a, a young surgeon who's making $500,000 a year, it is, it, you're absolutely correct, there is no way to paint all of them with the same brush. So let's dive into this study itself, just from the 30,000-foot view, because the next podcast, episode number two of this three-part series, we're going to dive in more deeply. But what is the most important and the most surprising thing that you learned? Yeah, so not to be a dead horse, but the the most important thing that we learned is the power of assumptions and how it can be so detrimental to an advisor's business or even in, you know, the business that David and I are in. Um, And I'll I'll just share uh, a a short story. My my husband and I years ago uh, were interviewing advisors. We walked away from two of them because those advisors made terribly wrong assumptions about our family structure. They, you know, assumed that my my husband was the primary breadwinner, which he was not. They assumed that he was knowledgeable and interested in investing, which he was not. They assumed that he made all the financial decisions. They knew they they made those assumptions after I told them I was in the industry and he had a series seven. It was crazy. We left those two meetings and I, I looked at my husband and I said, Do I look invisible? 
because for the rest of those intake sessions, they talk to him, talk to him about his clients, his travel, his golf, and pretty much ignored me. So we did not work with those advisors, but we didn't work with them, not because they weren't qualified. They made wrong assumptions and they didn't take the time to really get to know us as a couple or ask about our family and the dynamics of it. And for me, on a 30,000-foot view, just looking down, there were a couple of things that I learned. Uh, the, one of the biggest was the how, how risk, a, risk appetite for these, this cohort, for this segment of people, what their risk appetite was, and specifically around high net worth primary breadwinner men who were more conservative investors than their women counterparts, which was very surprising to us. And really, I remember seeing it for the first time, my mouth just kind of dropping open. The, the second one was that um, I learned that uh, all of Laura's best friends, she didn't like when she was younger. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, your experience is, a, a, I think, a similar experience to, to a lot of people. And we, uh, in, in the marketing side of this business, talk a lot about uh, some of the more blinding statistics that have been thrown around, uh, and I'm sure they've changed somewhat, but you know, uh, 90% of women leave their husband's financial advisor if they don't feel like they've been listened to, right? Um, that, that most financial services professionals will turn their chair toward the man and have their conversation there instead of really, truly realizing in a lot of situations that they're talking to the wrong person. And I love both of those, and I, and I can't wait to, to nerd out with you guys and dive in more deeply because this is something I happen to be very passionate about. But why is it so important to focus on how the genders are feeling about the questions? Well, I, I think, you know, again, uh, it goes back to making sure you're not making the wrong assumptions. Um, you know, just you, you cited a stat there, about 90% of women uh, believe they're advisors after death and divorce. So we didn't ask that. We, we asked a similar question, but not will you leave if your husband dies or your wife dies. Um, but we asked, had you thought about leaving your advisor over the past 12 months? And 20% of women said that they had thought about it and 39% of men. So again, wow. it's important to remember our survey was not all women or all men. It was high net worth primary breadwinners. So I can make a lot of assumptions about why that stat came out so differently than what we're used to hearing. Um, but I won't go there because I've just told, told you all how bad assumptions are. But we're doing some more qualitative research on that topic specifically. And so in the coming months, we'll have more, more to share on that. But I, I think, you know, overall, People are all unique and different, and, um, you know, it can be attractive to try to quickly bucket people based on their their assets or what you think their life is like at the office or at home. But by doing that, you know, I think you're missing the opportunity to really create deep and trusted relationships and to provide the right level of service and client experience that's so important for building a long-term practice. Let's do a quick preview of the next two podcasts because we're going to dive deeper into these results. 
What can our listeners expect? Well, they can expect to be surprised. Uh, We were certainly surprised by a lot of the results, uh, which drove home the, uh, the point that while all of us make assumptions, many of our assumptions are often wrong. And in business, we can't afford to do that. Um, because it will hurt the bottom line. But I think you'll um, find the rest of our um, results as pricing. A lot of them do not align with what we're used to hearing in the industry. And so we're excited to share those with you. Well, Laura and David, thank you very much for, one, doing the research, and two, uh, agreeing to uh, offer this as a wonderful three-part miniseries to our audience. We're excited. Great. Thank you, Matt. Laura Gregg, the Senior Vice President and Director of Practice Management and Advisor Research, and David Partain, who is the CMO of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds. We're going to dive into this study much, much more deeply uh, this next uh, couple of podcasts. We're going to make sure that we have links to the study uh, in our show notes here and, of course, the contact information for Laura and David. If you have any questions or would like them to come speak, because I know they're speaking all over the place, So, guys, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, if you have not subscribed to the podcast, make sure you click that subscribe now button below. That way, every time we come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And you know our listeners. Know somebody who needs to hear the results of this study and needs to pay attention to this three-part miniseries. You need to share this with other financial services professionals, and not just other financial services professionals, but other people who provide advice for a living. This is applicable to estate planning attorneys. This is applicable to CPAs. It's applicable to other people who work with this demographic. So it can be a great lead generation tool for you and a great way to deepen your relationships with your centers of influence. So for everybody here at Top Advisor Marketing, this is Matt Halloran, and we'll see you on the other side of the mic very soon. Are you ready to change the way you communicate with your clients? Are you tired of being the best kept secret in your area? Learn how to become a prolific online influencer, attract more ideal clients, and grow your business. Contact us today and see what the power of podcasting can do for your business. Click on the Contact Us link on our website at topadvisormarketing.com and set up a call to learn more. Follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook for more updates and information. This was brought to you by iris.xyz, a platform helping financial professionals become better in business and life through new media and new voices. Visit them and learn more at iris.xyz.